Hey all, you are listening to part two of a two-part episode. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, um, go ahead and pull over in your your forklift or your mech suit or whatever it is that you're currently driving uh, while you're listening to podcasts and listen to that one first because you can't listen to part two of a two-part series first, you dingus. Hope you enjoy it. So now we're going to get to the crowning element of this list we, we, we gave you, which is the spices. The spices were crucial. The spices were a huge motivator or incentive for the Dutch going anywhere overseas, as well as through space. Other, yeah, through space yeah. and time. Yep. Um, it must flow. Yes, exactly. Et it must flow. The spice must flow. The Dutch must flow. Yeah. And so, as we know, it came from sandworms. Right. In right. in the Indies, in Arrakis, yeah, yeah, or yeah, East, East Arrakis, Indies, yeah, same yeah. thing. <laughs> you know, Columbus arrived at Arrakis and he called it India. Yeah, that, so so that brings us actually to what a lot of people are. Uh, I should say, I think a lot of white people are not really aware of, which is weird because it's like half their fucking. That spices are good because all they eat is mayonnaise. <laughs> well, there's that. Fuck mayonnaise. They think salt is too spicy. Oh my god! And 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 believe me, it, it destroys me every day when I have to deal with this bullshit. Um, yeah, I was I was talking about this with Diane, and I uh, brought up this joke that I saw on Twitter that was like, I can't believe that the Europeans like destroyed and enslaved the world for spices and now they don't even eat spicy food yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> like it, it galls me yeah <laughs> oh man oh my god laughing it's, to keep from crying oh uh, yep yep you know they say that if you smile then you won't have a panic attack and that's, that's basically not true what i've been doing. yeah no i know it's not true <laughs> like ha 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 let's why go, was the spice trade let's go so down important. to the spice notes yeah so as i mentioned um the, the so let's let's get my dumb guy theory out of the way and then we'll, okay, we'll go into your, your actual shit. knowledge your that shit. you probably have sure. um so my guess is maybe it was the best way to capture excess capital capital for military development probably had some pretty hard limits in terms of how many soldiers could be controlled and fed and how much en- uh, industry mm-hmm. could be dedicated to mm-hmm. it so the sources of spices were uh that doesn't make sense uh that's just a fun fact um so basically my idea was like maybe it was a way to um expend all the excess capital that the upper class had you know because right spices were basically for the upper class for the most part right yeah it it was a you know any kind of exotic trade quote-unquote is a trickle-down situation yeah pretty much ever since ever um, unfortunately for the rest of us, you know, so like right. once, once they've, once they've mastered it and yeah. they want to just make more money, then they'll let the rest of us have right. it. Right. Um, did you have any other thoughts on the control of capital or anything like uh, that? No, but I will add that on the subject of rich versus poor people getting it, um, nutmeg was one of the spices that was oh, yeah. traded by yep. the VOC. And, um, the example of the uh, the closest thing to commoners using nutmeg is honestly infuriating. Uh, monks would sprinkle it into their peas porridge to Basically spice it up a little spicing bit. Spicing their their porridge. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, putting you, it into fucking nine day old food. Right. Right. Assholes. Fucking. I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, if you ever had that apple cinnamon oatmeal. You know, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. 
Although that's a refinement of the idea. Right. Right. Um, but also, you know, monks. Monks, man. So And now people just put in their damn cappuccinos. What's yeah. up with that? Pumpkin spice. Yeah. They don't realize they're you know, they're guzzling fucking like oh. fermented horse cum or something. <laughs> which is what that really is. I just want you all to know that before the police take me away. I'm being oh my god, I'm being dragged away. It's just horse cum. Oh my god. Oh shit, oh fuck. Ah. Okay, anyway, I'm back. Um the the, the the Dutch interest in the spice trade was uh, parallel to basically everyone's interest in trade with Asia that they could not otherwise access because of the political economic history of Euro-Asian relations, partly due to Christian-Islamic relations. As we mentioned earlier. Among other things, right. Yeah. Like indigenously, you know, in mm. the land, Europe is it can grow crops, it can grow trees, it can grow barbarians, yeah. but it can't grow shit else. No offense to my ancestors. Hey, or they got cousins. they got capers. They got That's a capers. great spice. They got capers. Everyone's favorite. Yeah, you got to pickle them, but whatever. Yeah, everyone yeah. loves when they get capers on a sandwich. Yeah. That's everyone, everyone the best pickle shit. everything. Yeah, everyone <laughs> just yeah. So so Asia had an abundance of spice, spices, and they also for a very fucking long time. Uh, had the trade routes and other infrastructure to support a thriving spice trade. Yeah. This also applies to the things like silk and porcelain that I mentioned before too. The silk roads were both land and sea. It was, it was not so much a uh, sort of a single complex of overland routes as it was like a massive set of circuits. And, and the silk roads were established by the Mongols, right? The silk roads were, uh, or protected, secured, okay. yeah, secured and, and protected by the Mongols. Okay. So what happened is the Silk Roads had been around for fucking forever. Yeah. Um, and they were more uh, than just silk. Yeah. They they were called the Silk Roads because of like European views of Asia, uh-huh. and because silk was a long running hot commodity yeah. that like even the fucking ancient Romans were really like gunning for, and like which they got from the Chinese via the Silk Roads. And there was like toward the end of like Roman antiquity, there was even an uh, like uh, an, uh, diplomatic mission, excuse me, between the Romans and the Chinese. Um, and and, and the so the Silk Road is out. where you you use the Bitcoin that your monks created to buy right. drugs, right? Right, drugs okay. and uh, underage prostitutes. Yes, right. That's okay. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you use one on the other. I can't remember how it goes, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the. Uh, the Silk Roads were both land and sea, and the the land one is the one we tend to know more, which is like it goes from basically like various points of China, you know, production centers, etc., across China, you know, from east to west, through Central Asia, among the various passes, through the various passes um, in those mountains and, and steppes and plateaus, through Iran, through, uh, you know, like Samarkand, and and so forth a lot of the stands as we know them now um and then all the way to the levant to asia minor uh and and so forth so you know in arabia so that was an extremely kind of mutually enriching complex of trade which no single power controlled okay right and this is key no single power controlled the Silk Road on land, and no single power controlled the Silk Road on sea 
Right, because it was based on Bitcoin, which is decentralized. <laughs> right, right, right. A bunch of monks getting approved by their, their religious leader. Yeah. Um, so the maritime route was basically from like the Chinese coast. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it technically ends, but it did basically trade up to Japan. So we could just pretend that it went all the way to Japan. Shanghai. Yeah, it's like Let's Shanghai, that. Japan, et cetera. Yeah. That whole area. Sea of, sea of Japan and, and, and East China. Um, and it's sort of, that was the one bookend. And it went all the way down through Southeast Asia, through uh, the Malacca Strait, you know, the Malaysian, the Malay Peninsula and Sumatra and Java, all the way west up through what we now call Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, all the way up India again into like past what we now call Somalia and Iran and the Persian Gulf, Arabia and uh, Egypt, more or less. Um, so it, massive, so massive. There was no like channel network f- from the Mediterranean to like the Indian Ocean, right? Not yet. Okay. So it was reliant on, at this point, if you were in... So you say, had to go to there, go over land to get to the Mediterranean? Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And so it was, it was like this. The land routes were good because as long as you had the land access, you could go kind of anywhere. Okay. Right, because that's where humans live. Yeah. Generally. Um, but the sea routes were also faster, typically. Yeah. And, like... Uh, you could haul way more shit. You could haul way more shit. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, technically, it was maybe, like, 50% or even 100% longer than the land routes overall uh-huh. because you were seeing so much coast. Right. And so the, the maritime routes were, like, really great, but they were controlled by the land access in the Middle Eastern and North African region yeah. because there was no Mediterranean to Indian Ocean. Which means the Muslims. Exactly. Yeah. So once the once the Muslims the, um, took over, the Abbasids and so forth, once they got all that area, then they were in this key position, which is like, you know, for them, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, <laughs> shit, like Islam and riches. Nice, <laughs> you know? Not bad. And this is actually, I think, one reason that the Arabs were originally successful merchants even before Islam. Yeah because they're on this really strategically located peninsula right. where they can just be like, all right, we'll take it from here, uh-huh. you know. So anyway, so, uh, you know, the, the Muslims in the 700s um, began to expand after the death of Muhammad. And after that, they encountered in the east, they encountered the Tang dynasty who was trying to... So geographically, the Abbasids were moving east from Arabia and the Levant the Tang Dynasty was moving west from like Xinjiang, which is uh-huh. Western China, and they met with all their different allies through some political finagling in the Battle of Talas, which is famous for again Asian studies types, but which most people have no fucking idea. About. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's it's a really crucial battle, which resulted in this kind of balance of power in that area. Okay, where the Tang Dynasty were defeated technically, but they both kind of saw that like. The Abbasids had no real point at that point in moving east into Chinese desert. Uh-huh. And the Chinese knew that the Abbasids were too powerful to push west from there. And it was, like, it was too costly to move over the desert into that area again. Okay, so, so the Tang Dynasty um, got their asses whooped by the Abbasids. And this is actually the point at which a bunch of the Turkic peoples This must be why Muslims. they're doing the whole Xinjiang thing. Yeah, Doing the ethnic cleansing of, of the actually. Yeah. So this led to the incursion of the Uyghurs and yeah, the Uyghurs, yeah, into Xinjiang in that area, uh-huh. 
and the Uyghurs were some of these Turkic peoples who were converted to Islam through that kind of course of events because they're like, mm-hmm. oh, the Abbasids are kind of badass. Let's become Muslims, you know? Yeah. Like, cool. And then, and so forth. Right, so that, th- this had massive repercussions for a variety of reasons. Getting back to the point, what it led to is that the Tang Dynasty realized they'd have overextended themselves <laughs> and they began to kind of turn inward for a little while. This led to a disruption of the overland Silk Road. Right. And so, again, people, this is in the 700s, but it's important, right? So the Tang Dynasty did that. So this resulted in Silk Road merchants turning to the alternate routes along the Maritime Silk Road, energized that over, uh, you know, in uh, in preference to, you know, the, the, the land road. And the Maritime Silk Road, again, spans from all the way from nearly Japan, basically, all the way around to Persia and Arabia. So we see a precedent in that era for these ancient sea routes and systems creating mutual enrichment of all these different societies along the way. But unlike the Phoenician Thalassocracy, which we discussed, these societies were ethnically distinct in most cases. They were generally autonomous. They had different religions and political worries. So there was no single permanent hegemon when it came to control of distribution, which is one of our favorite themes. And so cultural and mercantile exchanges were also not especially extractive. Like extraction maybe occurred on a local level, no big surprise. But it was not extractive in the way that the colonial systems would be later. So, so they were kind of like skimming off the top and yeah, not so much. Yeah, you know, it was okay. like more of what merchants traditionally did right. before okay. capitalism, right? So <clears throat> then you see later in the uh, roughly 12 to 1300s, the Mongols up in you know the north of China, they take over China, they took over a bunch of like the Middle East, and the Mongols were in some ways horrifically brutal, but in other ways they were extremely humane. They yeah. created like standardized currencies, standardized roads. They um, created a system of security called the Pax Mongolica in sort of English historical terms, um, in which it was said, I think that the proverb or the adage was like, a virgin with a basket of gold on her head could cross from one side to the of the empire to another without being harmed. Wow. Like people were like they trusted it that much because wow. <laughs> the Mongols would fuck you up if you didn't let them go. Nice. Right? So this was very important and this actually led to a lot of the exchange of goods and ideas in the Middle Ages that enriched okay. Europe uh-huh. because they were like, well, the Mongols scare the fuck out of us and we don't like them very much, but they're also ensuring that things kind of get through to us. Yeah. So we'll trade with them. We'll get that stuff and we know it'll happen. Mm. Right. So then, <laughs> then historical processes happened. Um, oh, also spices began to flow, right? Yeah. Uh, so Western buyers, if they had access to these routes, could access exotic spices that the Mongols could access. Uh-huh. And of course, any trader worth their salt, if you will, uh, would trade salt and spices, right, along these routes. But then, by the way, the Black Death, which we saw in the 1300s, came from Mongol, uh, we believe, military units who moved westward from somewhere in the steppe into the Middle East and then the rats that came on their on their um, baggage trains and stuff uh-huh. boarded Italian ships that went to Italy. Those rats had the bubonic plague. That spread the Black Death into yeah. Europe. 
at the same time and the main reason that the black death was so devastating was because of concentrated populations exactly it it only hit state peoples europeans were beginning to urbanize and right and statify yeah yeah i don't think we've mentioned this very much at all but like um prior really to the modern age states were pretty transient because they could just right. be wiped out by disease very because quickly. they were very yeah. concentrated you had to have a concentrated population exactly. in a state and so if anyone got a disease they didn't have much in the way of medicine so <laughs> it, it would just kill everyone yeah yeah so this was an era in which states were becoming more stable partly due to that yeah but then this massive epidemic pandemic yeah. happens partly because again of the ability of people to move securely from one location to like two or three thousand miles away because of the mongol security regime so that era and that devastation led to a collapse of the regimes and the security apparatus in the 14th century which in any given system whether it's you know mercantilist or feudalist or capitalist or any system that'll lead to price spikes lost access limited access uh between various regions so trade because trade falters which means that like anything will get under or it gets distributed to rich people first exactly right people with power or it just doesn't get distributed at all right right so the first person who can find it suddenly has hit the jackpot yeah or they get torn apart limb from limb you know (laughs) and so that one sounds pretty good to me yeah exactly (laughs) so then um because history moves faster than human lives in a strange kind of way the 15th century saw europeans going well that sucked you know yeah uh what do we do now and by this point uh the collapse of the mongol regimes had led to a or enabled a rise in islamic regimes again Mm -hmm. in the middle east in asia minor you know this was the fall of the byzantines finally this was all sorts of stuff and so the the kind of christian europe will um, they basically now had to deal with a mass of Islamic regimes and merchants controlling all that land access to both the land and sea routes of the Silk Road, right? So this is okay. where we're getting that political, economic, uh, this is where international relations comes back in, right? Okay. Where you're like, what's the balance of power? What's the sort of geopolitical, geoeconomic uh, lay of the land, if you will, or... Mm. or, or mapping and they just literally they could not get the shit they wanted that they developed tastes for Mm -hmm. and so they're like oh fuck like and because it was you know quote-unquote christian europe versus quote-unquote like the islamosphere you know and at that point they'd become political enemies because of other things you know the crusades Mm. Uh, the europeans were really unwilling to deal with islamic merchants right they just didn't want to make political concessions to them let alone trade concessions and so yeah there was a and i'm bit sure a lot of that there. had to do with the catholic church exactly yeah. right by that point the catholic church was entrenched yeah right and so and, it, and by the way um for most of this period the, the europeans were backwards dirt people yes yes they were the scum of the fucking Poor, earth terrible semi cannibals brutal <laughs> like, yeah, yeah just awful yeah. backwards people didn't yeah. know how to do math or it was no, pretty bad write numbers yeah. down or navigate yeah. any of that shit i mean yeah like it was Columbus Day recently. Oh my God! Yeah, there was that PragerU thing with Stephen Crowder saying that Columbus was a great navigator. He's a fucking moron. He was a moron. He had we're no about, fucking idea yeah. what he was doing. We're about to touch on that actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so great. the 15th century, <laughs> one of the reasons that this Columbus guy got shit for anything, is because 
the Euros were were desperate to find a different way to trade with Asia yeah. because they didn't want to deal with the Muslims yeah. because of all this bullshit. Uh, and so they began to look for like ways around and they're like, well, you know, let's look at the Greek theory we've sorely misunderstood, you know? And so this is the point at which like they began to look out for sort of opportunistic and desperate forays which were ultimately the only reason or nearly the only reason that the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British were able to ever become global powers. Right. Like they were regional powers. Sure. Or they were kind of, you know, up and comers, but they, this blue water navigation that they just kind of started to figure out how to do, which is like, which the only reason they knew this is because they got the knowledge from the Muslims. Exactly. Which is so bizarre. Right. And so yeah, the Muslims had estimated the circumference of the earth, like hundreds of years before them. (laughs) They understood that the earth was round hundreds of years before them. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to draw these maps that had the, the curvature of the earth factored in so that they could actually navigate across a long ocean without any like idea where they were actually headed. exactly exactly yeah. and so so they they managed to like steal and or you know use some of that knowledge to get into deep water and columbus was one of the guys who was like i kind of figured this out but his circle wasn't big enough yeah so that's how he was like oh yeah if i just sail this many weeks or months west i'll hit india and indonesia yeah i I, the uh, the other day i heard that he thought that asia was three thousand five hundred miles away from europe so really brilliant genius (laughs) navigator yeah he not only he he not only undershot that um but he only he crossed the smaller ocean yeah (laughs) like he only crossed the atlantic (laughs) and found land and was nearly about to die and didn't have any idea what the pacific actually looked like yeah which is massive um so let's see back to oh yeah so the europeans were like looking for these sea routes they basically wanted to monopolize the distribution of asian goods to european buyers and vice versa because they understood the power of the silk road network that pre-existed right so they didn't invent this shit this is another thing that like people take credit for but they never actually created they just kind of they just kind of like we're like well that, that existed before let's do our version of it yeah you know um, it's like Google and a Google Earth, you know? You're right. Like, well, it sort of was already there. Yeah. And they just kind of like perfected it. Okay. Yeah. So so the Dutch did their little thing. They went around Africa to Southeast Asia. They found Sumatra and Java. Early Dutch contacts with Javanese societies and kingdoms were not altogether fruitful. But after a little while they did find one regional leader who was willing to let them land their ships and set up a permanent post mm-hmm. in what we call Banten yeah. uh, in Java, which is where Bantam roosters come from, basically. Okay. So it's like a, it's the same kind of name. Um, but eventually, again, as with the Phoenicians, like one wasn't enough. Once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> and <laughs> mercantile interests, as, as is typical in these situations soon necessitated military protection and political games. Okay. So the Dutch, like they got their little, you know, land colony on the edge of the, of the Island and they started to trade locally. But I think partly because of the expense, partly because of security risks and partly because of their competition with like the Portuguese who were at that time, a big deal. Right. And who were also in the area. Yeah. 
um, and the British were trying to, you know, edge in, they started to have to play games with the other colonizing powers using local proxies. Right. Right. So that led to the Dutch essentially making deals, breaking deals, just like the, you know, colonists in North America did often, right? Oh, we'll have a treaty with you. Mostly because we can use that against our, you know, our opponents. Right. Right. And then we'll break the treaty as soon as you're weak and we're strong. Yeah. Yeah. So they kept doing that. Um, so one uh, particularly awful example of the VOC's operations was uh, the one on the archipelago called Banda. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that Yeah, Banda's good. Yeah, okay. That's good. Um, which at the time was the world's only source of nutmeg and mace. Um, so if you don't know... Uh, nutmeg and mace both come from the same mm-hmm. fruit, mm-hmm. the nutmeg fruit. Uh, nutmeg is the seed and mace is the rind. Um, if, if you ever want to use it in cooking, mace is like a more delicate version yeah. of nutmeg. It's, it's pretty nice. A little milder. Um, so the Europeans wanted uh, to control the trade of nutmeg mm-hmm. uh, so they could put it in their fucking peas porridge or whatever the fuck. <laughs> right. Um, put so it in, in cookies. The, yeah. <laughs> so in the 16th century, uh, the Portuguese conquered uh, Malacca which was an important trading hub for nutmeg. And, yep. and by the way, like, um, I don't know if we've emphasized this enough, but like the source of spices was kept very secret. Yeah. And spices themselves were shrouded in myth. Yep. Um, so traders would come back with spices and they would like tell tales about oh, them. Oh, yeah. It comes from this dragon's horde that yeah, I yeah. dug up. Yeah. So th- the places were kept secret. And, and so like European colonizers were trying to find the sources of the spices so yep. that they could just take control of them and yeah. and monopolize the trade yep um and this is this is like a like it's it's a good way to kind of think about um the early inclusion of like like the whole idea of trade secrets yes you know in competition in particular yeah where it's like you're, you don't you don't just want to trade you want to keep everything secret you want to make sure that nobody can even find the shit you're using so right. you can again uh secure that monopoly yeah yeah and and also like on the on the reverse like the quest for knowledge right that we kind of associate with europeans was really a brutal colonial project oh absolutely um yeah. so so yeah the europeans were were constantly they were they were on a long quest to like find the source of the spices um so yep. the Euro- the portuguese got kind of close they um they found malacca which was like one of the biggest trading hubs for nutmeg yep um and they conquered that um malacca's uh now in uh, malaysia well it, it's in the same spot as it was back then yeah but it's, it's what it's uh, in what is now malaysia <laughs> um, <laughs> um so the voc wanted to uh control like the source itself so yep. it, it made a it made a lot of effort to learn the location of the banda islands so um historians aren't sure whether they um like basically tortured people to like get the location and get them to drive them there or if they found someone who was like willing to do it right either one is possible because both happened in colonial projects you know throughout history yeah there was a lot there was a lot of uh very vicious um uh, suppression yeah as well as uh, uh like cutthroat competition you know, depending on who they were. Right. In, yeah. yeah. So they, they basically got some, um, some Indonesian people to, um, navigate, help them navigate to the Banda islands. And mm-hmm. 
So I, I think at first what they did was they um, set up a treaty with one of the local leaders and it was it basically said Not like surprising. oh we'll get rid of the Portuguese if right. uh, if you let us uh, you know buy your spices and right. so they were thankful at first and then yep yep almost devil's immediately bargain. devil's bargain yeah they started devil's, just murdering uh, people so they devil tower <laughs> um, all, all told they killed or sold off into slavery uh, fourteen thousand Bantanese people yep. which was over ninety percent of the population of the islands yeah I, again that. Those those couple of islands or a few islands is like, I've flown over them. And they're not large. Like, yeah, it's a tiny. It, ar- it, like looking yeah. up on a map, it's a tiny yeah. archipelago. Yeah, it's it's just that. Part, the total population was fifteen thousand. Yeah, so yeah. it was not very big at all. Yeah, that part of Indonesia is it's a bunch of islands, but they're all very small. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be like being on Molokai or something in Hawaii. Yeah, it's very small. Um, so needless to say, they got the monopoly they wanted. So they controlled it for a long time. Um, at one point, the British, also trying to gain control of the nutmeg trade, uh, negotiated a monopoly with another Bantanese leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1667, uh, they traded it uh, to the Dutch for control of uh, Manhattan, hmm. the island in New York. Never heard of that place. <laughs> <laughs> um, later, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the the Dutch Empire went th- went through an interregnum, which is basically like a period where the state doesn't really exercise much control yeah yeah interregnum is basically yeah typically it's like you said like the there may be a government there may not be in in action but there's no official like uh they were tied up in other matters or something yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) um so during the interregnum um the british uh went and uh cut down some of the uh nutmeg trees and they transplanted them Two countries near Indonesia, <laughs> uh, like Those Sri Lanka bastards. and uh, yeah, 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 and, and yeah. Malaysia, um, in order to break the monopoly. Right. So that was actually the smart it's strategy. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, why you probably got could have it. avoided this whole situation <laughs> if they had, if the <laughs> locals had just done that. But right, but they had no scope outside of their own island, right. which is the issue. Yeah, yeah. Let's not blame them though. Yeah. So that's what I have for that section. Pretty awful shit. Yeah. The. Um, the Spice Islands are, again, I've mentioned, what, twice now, three times that I've flown over the Banda Islands. Um, the Spice Islands in Maluku are basically where I grew up in the first, what, now third of my life. And there's a ton of spices there. I mean, they have cinnamon. Some shit we've never even heard of. Yeah, yeah. They have, they have well, among other things. <laughs> they have, let's see, let's see. Um... All right, so so the Spice Islands that we've been talking about briefly, um, uh, in this area, you know, again, we, we mentioned nutmeg, which is a, a big fucking deal. Yeah. Cinnamon is a big fucking deal to grow that. And, and nutmeg, as we all know, is when um, a soccer ball goes between your legs. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's what <laughs> happens. And then you regret everything. <laughs> also, cloves and mace um, and allspice i suppose yeah uh so so these are you know this all is, the stuff you need for good garam masala exactly yeah. you know, i just these are these are things that uh maybe don't fill out your entire spice cabinet now yeah um but that's because we live in an era where we're spoiled we spices everywhere spoiled motherfuckers yeah. yeah i was i was saying this when we were um outside on a break um 
I, I think it's pretty pretty interesting and maybe not funny because it involved you know mass death, but you know back then shrug you know we <laughs> we had very nutritious food that didn't taste very good, and now mm-hmm. we have really non nutritious food that tastes really good. Yeah. So yeah. if you're if you're poor, you put spices in your food to make it taste better. Right. Um, and if and you're rich, you get really really there, nutritious which is, food. You know, legit good. But yeah, 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 and yeah, and so the spice islands like they produced a lot, especially for the time. Did, did it, they did they have peppers? Do you know? Did they have peppers in Europe, or was that also an Asian thing? Well, there, there's. I know there's kind, a lot of specific pepper yeah, breeds. I was gonna say there's different kinds of peppers, obviously. Right. Um, pe- like chili peppers, as we know, it come from um, the Americas. Okay. Right. But they were rapidly uh, uh, brought over to Southeast Asia to grow. Okay. Right. So that's where you get like Thai. So like Thai chilies LA, did come chilies. from. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. All that shit. All that good shit. So what about like bell peppers though? That's uh, like a mutation oh, okay. of those same peppers. Okay. As, as I okay. recall. As I recall. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so like, uh, you know, now you know a lot of southeast asian cuisine is based on things that were brought over through the colonial system from other colonies right um they've integrated things like peanuts and potatoes and tomatoes and chili peppers yeah. in with things that were indigenous to them like um other kinds of potatoes um coconut obviously uh and and various kinds of like uh, indigenous uh vegetables fruits leaves etc yeah and and proteins kratom um, all that stuff exactly right <laughs> so a lot of what you consider to be like you know authentic southeast asian cuisine which is delicious is well i hate it's to like italian say food. it it's like italian food it's, yeah. it's a sort of a post-colonial invention it's like a fusion food interesting yeah okay um but that's kind of what makes it brilliant is yeah. that the it, it was much of it at least was invented by the people who were from there working with the things that were now being imported or even planted in their own backyard mm. for the profit of the the colonists and so they just worked with it and they made beautiful things out of it um, so cool. the resilience of humankind, hey oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving moving on from you know getting pleasure from pain. Well, really, like at this point, we should close it out because like after the VOC took over what we now call Indonesia, mm. more or less, um, through their process of kind of playing people against each other, taking over different ports, mm-hmm. mobilizing different militaries, often local militaries against each other, you know, um, so like they'd, they'd play a kingdom against another kingdom and then they'd mm-hmm. take over both, you yeah. know, that kind of shit. One, one other thing I could, I can talk about briefly. I, I yep. didn't write anything down about it, but I, I, uh, skimmed through this paper because mm-hmm. I, I was trying to see, uh, I, I thought of a question, which was like, how, how many like hours of labor could they mobilize? Oh with yeah, the, we were wondering about yeah that. with the expenditures yeah. they had available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I never found the answer to that, but I did find this fairly interesting paper that talked about like they basically studied a sample of workers in the VOC and how they advanced through the company, and they also uh-huh. kind of mapped out like the like the structure of the company itself, so that there was different sectors. So they had a military sector, a maritime sector, and a civil sector. And the civil sector was like the highest one. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, the maritime sector, you could um, you start off as like a, a seaman 
mm-hmm. then you could move up to eventually being a captain. Not that bad. was like the highest rank in the maritime sector. In the mm-hmm. military sector, they had different ranks there. Okay. I didn't pay attention quite to that, yeah. um, to the different rankings there. But, but basically, if you wanted to advance um, past um, the military or maritime sectors, you would go into the civil sector, and eventually you would get to the like governing board or whatever, whatever it was called. Right. Um, right. And. Um, corporate ladder shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it, it much resembled uh, moving up the corporate ladder today. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. The, it's kind of the, the the granddaddy of corporate theory. Yeah. You know, just like their 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 operations, their structure, uh, and their mission. You know, to kind of take all and win all. Yeah. You know, basically what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I had for that. Really. Yeah. 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 It basically explains, you know, the origins and the current state of things. Right. Um, But eventually, of course, it couldn't help like any state or quasi-state to basically stumble over something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So do you you want to take the downfall part? Sure. I'll I'll just go with it. Um, So the VOC was after something like... Nearly 200 years, roughly 200 years. Mm-hmm. VOC was nationalized in 1796. This was uh, kind of a an accident of history. Okay. Um, they were doing okay for a long time. You know, they, I mean, the last 200 years, not out of, you know, just chance. Yeah. Right? Uh, now, that doesn't mean that they were actually doing uh, morally good business, but they were doing effective business. <laughs> right? So... Uh, but uh, among other things, there was the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War in the early 1780s, and that had cost the VOC quite a bit. Basically, they just couldn't handle all the costs. They couldn't handle all the logistics. And then within another five years or so, the French Revolution happens. And if any of you is familiar with the continental effects of the French Revolution, it's not really surprising that their little neighbor <laughs> in Amsterdam would be affected by this. So basically the French, by 1795, were aggressively spreading all their kind of radical views, the revolutionary Republican views. And in so doing, they were actively restructuring the landscape of European politics, right? And this is one reason why uh, European powers were at war with them is because all these fucking monarchists were like, oh, we can't have people being equal to each yeah. other. That sucks, you know? <laughs> so, you right? So, hilariously, though, uh, the Netherlands had at least some significant population of people who were s- sort of sympathetic to uh, Republican or enlightened liberal ideas at the time. Okay. So they were like, oh, well, the French are kind of trying to equalize people in some way or another, and we, we, we like that enough that we'll kind of collaborate with them. And so when the French invaded, then they found some sympathizers in Amsterdam. They successfully installed this kind of French-aligned Batavian Republic. Okay. Which... Is, and Batavia was what they called Jakarta. Right. Yeah. So they called, yeah, so so Jakarta we kind of skipped over briefly, but it's like not a big, big deal. Uh, it's a, it's just the capital. It's just the capital Indonesia. of Indonesia. <laughs> Whatever. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so Jakarta was this, this, uh, 
decently significant port at first, and now it's like this massive metropolis. But they they named Jakarta Batavia uh, when they took it over and colonized. Jakarta is such a better name. I agree. Jakarta is one agree. of my favorite names for a place. I yeah. think uh, Jakarta is a better name than the city is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I lived in Jakarta for a year and like, there's some cool shit there. And like, obviously the people in the city, are, you know, there's a lot of good people there. Um, but the city as a whole is just like a fucking mess. It's yeah. just awful. Um, it just, it stinks. And traffic is like, y- it takes you an hour to go like a kilometer. Oh, it's okay. It's fucking bad. Wow. Yeah. And it's still like that, apparently. Wow. Um, according to some some other people I've talked to recently. Damn. Um, yeah, it's fucking pathetic. Um, but that's 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 where they run the country from. <laughs> um, so they na- they renamed it Batavia or Batavia after this kind of uh, you know uh, even pre medieval like 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 antiquity tribe uh, ancient tribe that the Romans had encountered up in that area. So it was this kind of mythical name for like a Germanic uh, or Germano-Celtic group of people in Europe. For some reason, they named Jakarta that. But then when the French invaded Amsterdam, you know, what, 200 years after they took over Jakarta. Yeah. When the French invaded Amsterdam, they were like, oh, let's have this fancy republic. And they renamed themselves the netherlands the batavian republic the republic that republic then basically absorbed the voc and because of reasons they let the charter run out in 1799 okay so the voc was already kind of like weakened by these previous wars Mm -hmm. with the british with others and then can't even trade any nutmeg anymore. Exactly. Right. You know, and the French just kind of like showed up. They're like, "You're all, you're all fucking Republicans now." And we're, we're talking in the Republicans in the political science, right, right, right. Sense. Yeah. Um, and then the Republic then, yeah, just was like, "All right, like we nationalized it, and fuck it. Like, why would we let it have its own charter anymore? Yeah. We're, let it run out. So then, after the Napoleonic Wars uh, kind of came and went uh, over the next what decade or two. Then the Brits kind of took over the former VOCs, currently Dutch uh, colonial infrastructure, uh, and and kind of did their own thing. And it's funny because like you know the, the Brits were always like lusting for that region. Yeah, you know the Brits and the Portuguese and the Dutch had traditionally competed a lot in uh-huh. like the Malay region, which is one reason why the Brits colonized malaysia created singapore out of almost nothing uh-huh. and had uh, and claimed uh part Burma, of borneo right, uh borneo oh okay yeah but yeah and then the portuguese had a variety of other like port colonies including what is now uh timor-leste um but that's also complicated indonesian history uh so so after the napoleonic wars ended the brits kind of like okay we'll assume control over this and like haha rub their grubby little hands together but after that, they kind of did some administrative things, and the Dutch kind of took it all back again because of this kind of cascade effect of political seizures. And so basically, the VOC kind of formally disappeared. Mm. Uh, but really what had happened is the Dutch had achieved their big goal, which was to create a, a projection of the state 
create power through that. Okay. The VOC had served its purpose. Now, through war and accident, the VOC had become nationalized. Okay. And then given away and then handed back to the Dutch government. But now the Dutch government was now just officially a colonial power instead of like a shell company. Okay. Right? So then Dutch colonialism went strong for another century or so uh-huh. up until basically um, the Japanese occupation of Indonesia. Okay. Right. So at least in that region. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it's an interesting uh, look at how this kind of corporatist uh, formal organization works, how it's kind yeah. of nimble uh-huh. and cynical yeah. <laughs> and extremely politically involved. Right. Yeah. You know, it's another thing I, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, but, um, I mean, I didn't look if there were other examples of this around Mm -hmm. the same time, but Mm -hmm. the VOC probably had one of the most recognizable brands for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, they had like their logo was like the letters VOC. Right. And very, like, I I didn't even realize that I recognized it, but like when I saw the logo, I was like, Oh, I've seen this before. Yeah. So like it, yeah, there's like all these like porcelain products and stuff yep. that are still around that have the VOC logo on them. Yep. So like prior to, you know, the modern era where we have, you know, children recognize like two different, 200 different types yeah. of brands. It's like Coca-Cola. Yeah. VOC. Yeah. It was a very recognizable brand. So that, that's a, that's another interesting yeah. connection to the modern time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, is that all we have? Well, I, uh, can't think of anything else you I know it's random shit sprinkled around but i don't think it's anything important and not anything we could really no nothing we dedicate can, a section on no um everything that we just talked about in our patchy disjointed way has its own like subtopic yeah that you should totally look into yeah we like, could we could honestly have stretched this out to yeah. like uh, you know 10 episodes uh, yeah probably. whether like we 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 actually had a hard time like concentrating everything into into one or two episodes for this because whether it's like oh metal and currency or like spice as a commodity yeah. and like where spices come from and why people care about it and yeah. like who the dutch were yeah. why european versus you know like asian trade routes blah 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 blah, yeah. blah you know it was it was a it's a huge topic and i think it's one reason why it's so ex- sort of intensively studied right so i guess for conclusions from this um again businesses are intimately part of the state right um you they know feed this was each a, other yeah and they um, imitate each other this is a a, mo- a model of a modern corporation oh yeah um the only real difference is like um besides technology obviously um modern corporations there's like a like one thing that i haven't really gotten into that could be a a decent episode topic to get into is Mm -hmm. is um a big part of statecraft is standardization oh yeah no that's huge yeah that's one reason like writing comes in like um like for example modern shipping which we'll get into in the mersk episode so I, i can expand on this later but part like the reason that um global trade has exploded so much is not because of any particular technological innovation in Mm -hmm. terms of like 
oh, now we have these super efficient engines or now we have these like computerized systems to blah, blah, blah. Right. It's literally because we now have containerized shipping. So instead of trying to fill a ship up to the gills, you just put it all in boxes. Yep. And then you, you pick the boxes with a crane and move it onto the ship. Exactly. And it makes everything really simple to manage. Yep. That's the thing is like, you need standardization to manage things effectively. So the, the the real difference between the VOC back then and modern corporations today is that we have standardized the process of creating a limited liability company that can operate multinationally. Right. Like every nation has like a law, a law that, that allows someone to start a corporation. And if they are able to build it up, which basically depends on them serving the interests of the state that it's based in, then anyone can start their own part of the state. Um, and the both the legal structure and the way that money works ensures basically that it will uphold the state's interests in one way or another. Right. Either directly by building, you know, military implements or supplying it with resources, or indirectly by serving its employees like with coffee shops or fast food restaurants or whatever. Right. Um, I guess that's all I have. I can't think of anything else. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say about this one. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more we could say if we did more research, but (laughs) we didn't because at some point you got to quit. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Um, we've been talking a while. Yeah. Yeah. We're both, we're both pretty tired. Um, so, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, once again, I'm Ryan Salisbury. Chris uh, Nivens. Yeah, Chris Nivens. Um, found on Twitter. Right. I'm I'm at Handle of Rye. Uh, Chris is at Solidarity underscore Goth. Yep. Our podcast is at Neighbor Side Pod on mm-hmm. Twitter. Um, Neighbor Science on Facebook. Neighbor Science on Patreon, and Neighbor Science on Instagram. Uh, our website is neighborscience.podbean.com. I'll pro- I, I, I'm gonna get a domain name eventually. I just <laughs> I I always put off. Well, you purchases. don't like Podbean.com. <laughs> I always I always put off purchases as long as possible. Like yeah. I have a lot in savings just because, just because like yeah. anytime I think of buying something, I'm like, eh, I don't need it right now. Mm. So like you're better than I am. I like <laughs> I only recently got rid of some jeans that I had since I was 18 years old. I'm 29 right Damn. now. So I had him for over a decade <laughs> and it's mostly because I don't like buying shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. So I've been, I've been, uh, procrastinating on buying the domain name, but I, I will do it eventually. Hopefully no one scoops it up from me. Um, <laughs> someone who wants Some neighbor Dutch science podcast <laughs> or something like that. Jeez. They kill 15,000 domain names <laughs> to get yours. <laughs> Gosh. Um, yeah, I, I think that's it. Um, yeah, once again, if you sign up for our Patreon, any amount over uh, a dollar or more, and you can listen to any any content we clip out, which is usually uh, extra stories about stuff that's happening to us or me yep. saying something racist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the the pre-show chats that you know yeah. us warming up, talking about you know whatever is happening at the time. Yeah, um, yeah. So check that out. Sometimes um, it's actually good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once in a while. And uh, our next 
uh, episode on this topic is going to be about Maersk, the modern uh, Danish shipping company. So that should be interesting. Yeah. All right. Well. Bye. Bye.